welcome to Third Space City Podcast. Today we are joined by Professor Chong Yap Singh, Dean of NUS Yonglin School of Medicine. Today we talk about the importance of being more than just a doctor, the varied career paths beyond being a practicing clinician, the introduction of various changes to the medical school curriculum, such as a gap year program and a major and minor system where students can gain knowledges in the humanities and technology beyond just clinical medicine. The future is going to be a lot more unpredictable for young people. And I was just wondering, have you had any plans to change the curriculum or to change the medical school structure to meet these unpredictable demands of? Many changes are required to, the, to our curriculum, which is, has been, it's very traditional. I think our curriculum is something that you, if you looked back in the 50s, 1950s I'm talking about, uh, you, you would have seen something similar. And it's the same all around the world. It tends to be traditional because doctors are conservative. But if you think about it carefully, right, when you go through medical school, you, when you graduate, the, the first job in medical school is to make sure that you are a very competent, responsible house officer. Training as a resident train, prepares you to become a family physician or specialist or subspecialist. Or, and a very few uh, doctors then want to become going to the public health arena. And of course, uh, there's even a smaller number that will go into other careers that are also medically related. It could be medical administration, could be healthcare policy, or you could go into the business of uh, healthcare. So there, there, there are many things that uh, can be the outcome of your medical training. Talk about the, the clinical part of things. If you become a family physician or a specialist, there's, uh, there are many things you can do even in those areas. There's, of course, clinical practice, which is the mainstay, but also research. There's a, your role as an educator, which I think all doctors have a responsibility to. And then, more increasingly, there's a, your, the role of a clinician as an innovator. And I think especially important in the coming years is to be a technologist as well. This is the era of information. So much information available. You have to harness it by understanding uh, how to manage data, how to analyze data, and then use it. Technology will augment whatever you do, whether you like it or not. And even in research, you have clinical research, basic research. So I think these are all important things for us to be aware of and not just focus on diseases. It's in how to arrive at a diagnosis, how to investigate, and then how to manage. I mean, I think uh, traditionally, that's what all medical students focus on. But there's so much more out there that you have to understand. When you actually start practicing as a, as a doctor, the two things are essential. One is that you must be deeply grounded in values so that you don't go astray. I mean, because as a doctor, you have access to very private information and you are, you are very privileged to make decisions that can influence people's lives, right? In terms of the choice of many therapies that you give or whether you see somebody is fit to attend court or even to be uh, punished by, by law, because a lot of times in medicine, decisions are not clear-cut. The right and wrong is a very fine line. The second thing that you need to have, especially in this century, is you have to have bags of potential. The potential so that you can excel and adapt to whatever life throws. So I attended a class in business school one day and they defined potential as four characteristics. Having insight, having the ability to engage people, having deep curiosity and determination. And it's been said that the more technology develops, the more important the soft skills are. And then having curiosity is critical. I mean, if you're not curious about anything, then you'll never try to improve you know, what life throws at you, right? So I think to solve, why, why is this the case? You know, 
do we really need to do it this way? Can we do it some other way? And then, you know, what's this about? Can I learn about it? Having that lifelong and so develop yourself. So that every aspect, stage of your life, you learn new things and uh, you're happy doing so and you become really good at whatever you, uh, challenges uh, you have to face. You know, I, when I was a house officer, we used to dread being on call on Monday because Tuesday is the day we do all the open heart surgery. So on, on Monday, you admit all the uh, patients and there's a workup that requires ECG, swabs, all sorts of things. And so you spend the whole uh, night uh, doing all the investigations for them. And then, uh, you know, at 3 a.m. in the morning, you are still, have, you are still finishing the investigations and then the nurse tells you, oh, you know, another five cases have been admitted. And then you thought, sort of, okay, I haven't slept. I've still got all these things to do. And you just wonder how you're going to make it. But you know what? 6 a.m. comes around, 7 a.m. comes around, the sun rises and life carries on and, you know, you are still alive and hopefully you've done your work properly so that uh, the patients are well taken care of. I think that having the determination and resilience to go through those moments it's important for us to be conscious of all these things that doctors need to have to become really good at what they do and not just focus only on the obvious things like it's an uncertain world, right? You know, the pace of disruptions is increasing. So it, it took, I don't know, I mean, the Industrial Revolution started in the 1800s. It took over 100, you know, 100 years for things to actually just you know, move along slowly. But then in the last 20 years, so many... When did iPhone come out? Just over 10 years ago. And that has changed our lives, right? You know, COVID-19 has shown us that, yep, you don't have to be at work to do work. You know, look at the political changes going around the world, right? All these disruptions are happening so fast that, you know, if you really were just to project forward, you can just imagine that, you know, even what you're studying now in medical school may be completely different uh, by the time you graduate. As a, as a trainee, I remember I was, um, we were warned very severely that if you are training, you do not do a fenestyl incision for cesarean section. <laughs> section. Okay, you have to do a midline incision. If you had an ectopic pregnancy, you had to do an open surgery. You can't do minimally invasive surgery. And if you did that as a trainee, you would be you know, probably expelled from the, the program. But look now, who does an open, right, who does a midline incision for a cesarean section? operation for ectopic pregnancy anymore you know so things change a lot all the dogmas in medicine uh, have i think most of them have changed over the years i was told very clearly it's completely changed i think it's important that we we have that curiosity to say is this really the only way to do things uh, can we you know explore a little bit because like we talked about this before about um, a gap year program for medical students that are that's currently in the works do you mind if you could share a bit more about what the program would look like? I think it's important for our students to have uh, knowledge and skills beyond just uh, pure medicine. We, we do want to roll this out so that our students all come up with some exposure to another area of knowledge that is relevant to healthcare, not necessarily to medicine. Alone. And we are approaching it in several ways. So one is the gap year, right? So this is a simple thing. Basically, there are two natural gaps. One is between finishing your, your pre-clinicals and then moving to clinical. So after the first two years, there's a gap before you start clinicals. A gap between the third and fourth year where before you move into more specialized clinical training. So those two years, we say that, well, it's a good time for medical students if they have the inclination to take one year off from medical school and then pursue a 
one year of work to get a second degree, maybe a master's relevant field. So, and this is not a new idea. I mean, if you go to most of the UK medical schools, uh, the, the students are, are not, are, have no choice. They have to take an intercalated year to do a Bachelor of Science. And we had that kind of a program in, in the medical faculty in those days uh, in Singapore, where yeah, we say that, you know, third year, take a year off, do a Bachelor of Medical Sciences. But unfortunately at that time, because we were very much traditional curricular club, uh, and our doctors were very focused on finishing and getting out of med school as soon as possible, right? So there was hardly any people who were interested in taking a year off. But now I see the new generation that are different. Uh, there are more people like yourself, for example, who are willing to take a year off to do something different. And it came to a head last year, I think when I think four or five students approached me and said they wanted to take a year off to do something else. So it's that point, we will... We think that's something worth doing and we started to get approval for it. Unfortunately, we then ran into many barriers because one thing, when, when we train a medical student, as I said, the first thing that they have to do when they finish medical school is become a house officer. And so it's not, first of all, I have to get permission from NUS. And then there's the Minister of Education who has to say, okay, because Minister of Education, you know, of course they are, they are heavily subsidizing your medical studies. So you have to be sure that yeah, you know, you, you'll come back after your one year and then you finish what you say you, you, you start. And then there's the Ministry of Health because house officers, you are manpower for Ministry of Health. And then for the men, um, there's national service, right? So, so we had to get approval from three ministries beyond NUS, which was relatively straightforward because they thought it was a good idea. Ministry of Education had to go through the, all the policy implications and then Ministry of Health, the manpower applications, and Ministry of Defense, manpower implications. So getting all those things aligned was difficult, but we managed to do it. So just a month or two back, the NUS uh, Senate approved uh, the gap year. And we are starting cautiously. So we're just saying uh, five students a year to begin with. Because remember, if we had many of them, it will disrupt the manpower situation. So just five to begin with. And then the stipulation was that in order to ensure these people actually succeed, we will choose the top students, uh, as in the top 25% of students. So to, to do this. And the first thing that we can offer is a master's by, by research. So the idea is that you can take a gap year off if you want to do one particular area of research. It could be research in, in a classical sense, say in a wet lab, or it could be a clinical piece of work. Or it could be in data or health services. So it, we're not restricting you to just pure medical research. Right? Yeah, and this will start from this coming academic year, academic year 2021. But we hope by the next academic year, 2021-2022, to have the Masters of Public Health also made available. And then we will approach probably the Institute for System Sciences in NUS to look at our Masters in Technology uh, it could be digital learning or in intelligent systems. We work with a faculty of engineering to look at the masters of uh, masters of technology and systems design and management, and so forth. There are other things you could do in the masters of public administration and so forth. But that means that you will finish your MBBS only in six years, and you won't get your masters un until you finish MBBS. So. You can't get a master's before you get a bachelor's degree, right? So basically, when you graduate with the gap year, 
uh, you'll be MBBS, comma, masters or something. The other route is democratic one, where we basically we, we say, okay, all students in the Young Lodin School of Medicine can go undergo several different pathways. So we have six pathways lined up, which we have rolled up for this year's fourth years. So one pathway is on health informatics. Uh, to teach you how to manage and analyze data, uh, in, in particular regarding health. There's one pathway on medical education to help you understand more about the pedagogy of medical education and how, uh, and also understand the science of learning. There's a health and humanities pathway where we go more into the, the softer side of things uh, and arts, teach you reflection and critical thinking. There's an inquiry and thinking pathway, which is a code word for research, actually. But it helps you to ask the right questions, question your assumptions, and frame a good research question, and then to understand the methodologies that are available to you to answer your question on the test or hypothesis. And then there's a medical innovation and entrepreneurship pathway, where again, we teach you to identify a, a need, understand how to develop solutions for it, and then very importantly, you know, it's great to have a solution, but you must have a problem first, right? Don't develop solutions for problems that don't exist. And then you must have a market. So having a commercial intelligence to, to know how to um, bring things, your ideas to the market. We've started a new center for behavioral implementation sciences. Uh, and that is something we want our, all our students to actually have a strong grasp of, to understand human psychology, uh, how to drive them to do the right things for themselves and for the other people uh, through behavioral nudges, and then to know how to implement it so that it sticks. And the number three route is that is something that uh, actually the NUS provost brought all the deans together and he suggested it as well. Is that we consider major or minor in a in a different discipline. Our curriculum is a non-modular one, but um, we hope to be able to offer our students uh, a minor or major in a different discipline. Okay, So it's um, six weeks of contact teaching time, or teaching time, basically. For us, when, when can we find six weeks or 12 weeks for a medical student? So you've been through the first two years. So you know, first two years, there are fairly fair amount of downtime that we, we could probably squeeze it in there. The other option is, of course, to squeeze it into, into a, your electives. So there are, there are 12 weeks of electives in uh, fourth years. So if you wanted to, you could do a major in that 12 weeks, or you could do a minor in half the time. This is what we are hoping for, is that you don't have, without taking a gap year, you can squeeze in a minor or a major in another subject, or two, two minors along with your, your medical studies, and we will give you the appropriate academic credits for it as well. You know, being very, very strongly grounded in medicine, because we, we, we are still very hardline traditional in, the, in, our, in how much we demand from our students in, the, in that aspect. So now we want to round it out a little bit more with something else. And even if those don't come, in your own working life of 40, 50 years, you will go through various transitions and your focus will change and we want to equip you well for that. So medical school, I think you, you might have asked me, is this a professional school? part of university or training for life. In my view, it should be both. Because you know, we have a working life of 40, 50 years, at least for the next half century, they should be equipped uh, to do all the changes that we expect to see. 
how long have you had these like thoughts for changing the medical school curriculum, I guess? Do you have these thoughts like even before you became a dean or was it something that you only came about like after you became dean? I think I first started thinking about all these things uh, back in around, probably around 2010 or so. At the time, I wasn't expecting to become dean or, or you know, planning to change the curriculum uh, as the dean. But I was involved enough with the, the medical school that I thought that, yeah, it was, it's a pity that, you know, we are located on, in a Cambridge campus, surrounded by a completely comprehensive and world-class university. And we were not tapping on any of the opportunities that were available on the campus, right? So we had a, we have faculty of arts and social sciences, we have business, we have engineering, we have design, environment, we have music, and so forth. And we were not tapping on any of those first thing I did then was to tie up with music. We started having concerts together. It's difficult, but we're getting there because now we have faculty from Yongsuto Conservatory who are working on mental health and neurodevelopment as well. So I think there's scope for us to do with so much with all the schools and faculties in NUS. Yeah, we, should, we should leverage on other schools and disciplines. And that's how I think the thoughts around you know, having alternative domains of knowledge and skills that uh, our students should get involved in uh, started. Just to play like a devil's advocate, because these are questions which were posed to me, not just like by students who are thinking about taking a gap year, but also by clinicians when I told them I did take a gap year. So there's, there's still that perception that if a medical student takes a gap year, then they become less of a clinician somehow, even though you still have five years of medical school, you're not like cutting down on any time, any of your training time. So one question, is like, one question which I always get is, why do you need to take a gap year to begin with if you could just do this on your own time, like as a medical student or even as a doctor? Like, I guess you could cite senior clinicians like yourself who did do this along the way after your training. And first of all, I must congratulate your generation. Okay? I think in, in my time, my generation, uh, nobody would have voluntarily taken a gap year or very, very few people. And certainly I wouldn't have taken a gap year. Point. As I said, the focus then was to focus on medicine, finish medical school as soon as possible, and um, that, that was the main purpose. And, but I do notice that in, in your generation, as you said, people have done the university scholars program, and then of course you have taken a gap year, and then the two others have followed you. Your generation needs more purpose in what you do. And I, uh, I think that taking a gap year is something that you should do if you have the passion for it. So, I mean, it's not something you do because everybody does it. Then that's the wrong reason, right? So, uh, you do it because you have a passion for a particular area of knowledge that is not provided by the medical school. Okay? And is it important? Why can't you just do it off hours, you know, and uh, a downtime on your own time, right? Uh, yes, you can do that. And for many, it'll be sufficient. But for some who truly have that passion for it and want to really excel, then I think taking the extra time off to focus, focus on this new area is, is important. Sure, I managed to pick up a lot of things on my own, but I think I would have done that a lot better if I had taken uh, more time off to focus on it and to be properly guided to do it. I think anybody who thinks that uh, a medical student who takes a gap year is not serious about medicine and maybe we shouldn't consider them for residency. I think these people really need to be re-educated. Those are the same people who say that you cannot do a 
fenestrial insertion for cesarean section if you are a resident, right? Uh, they have to change with the times. But it's important, you do the gap year because you really have a passion for something and you want to do it. Not because everybody else is doing it, not because it gives you a better chance at getting a particular residency or not. If you do it for those reasons, then I think you may have some regret and it may be time wasted. So Prof Chong, in addition to being Dean of Yong Lulin School of Medicine, there's also other things that you do like being a scientist and being part of ASTAR. So could you talk, tell us a bit more about your research background as well? Actually, one, one fantastic thing about being an academic clinician is that uh, at the various different parts of your life, you, you do different things that are more important to you at that point in time. When I, of course, when I graduated, you know, like everybody else, I became a house officer. And then I spent the first 10 years of my clinical, my working life as a, basically as a doctor, right? So focusing on improving my clinical skills. And then after that, uh, I decided to do obstetrics and gynecology. And then that was a, probably a six-year training period to specialize and then do my exams uh, in obstetrics and gynecology. And then another two or three years becoming established uh, specialist. And then I started getting interested in teaching more, you know, as, as once you, you know, sort of stabilize your clinical skills, then it was important for me to transmit that you know, to the next generation, right? So the next phase of my career, which was roughly about the time uh, I joined NUS, was I started to focus more on teaching. The dean asked me to take over the medical education unit, which is a unit to develop the faculties. Uh, skills in teaching medicine. So the idea was to you know, uh, professionalize and promote excellence in medical education within the Young Lulin School of Medicine and within Singapore. And so I became the director of the medical education unit. I think I did that for quite a long time, almost 14 years, I think. I used to go to the Center for Development of Teaching and Learning all the time. Every time they had some interesting course, uh, I would just go, you know, it was a course on how to uh, build your own web page, course on how to use PowerPoint. And then there was a course one day on how to use this thing called PISER, P-I-S-E-R, which was acronym for Peer Instruction and Student Electronic Response. So it was a method of teaching that this, he gave every student a device to respond to questions. So he would ask questions on his, on his PowerPoint and then you know, he will poll the students, students will answer. So right now you have poll everywhere, right? So that's what we use uh, to do the same thing now. But by those days, I, you know what happened after that? I actually bought a set of those uh, things myself. I, I, there was a company in, in Hong Kong, I think, that made the, the software as well as the hardware. And I actually bought it using my own money because I was just so interested and you know, wanted to try it out. But in the middle of all that, uh, uh, around even during my early years when I was doing clinical work, my head of department at the time, Professor Arul Kumaran, was now knighted and is, uh, he was um, briefly the uh, president of the Royal College of Obstetricians and Gynecology in the UK. That's after he left Singapore. Uh, at that time, he, when he saw that I finished my specialist training, uh, he asked me to start doing some, something else you know, beyond clinical work. So he got me to sign up for MD, which is like a clinical PhD. Strong suggestion, so I couldn't really <laughs> refuse. Uh, and that's how I got started with research, uh, even during my clinical years. As I said, I, I went on to focus a lot on education. 
But at the same time, I was still doing my research. And my initial venture into research was obviously very discipline-based as well. I was doing uh, a lot of research in uh, management of labor. Uh, and then especially looking at the, the problem of postpartum hemorrhage, trying to develop new ways of uh, preventing that. So th- those are my early years of research. But then, and interestingly, after I got married and had my first child, suddenly I got interested in the idea of lactation and breastfeeding. And that was actually driven by my wife because she basically was adamant that she wanted to breastfeed all her children completely exclusively. And, you know, even as a doctor, I, I was saying, oh, why, why were you so sort of obsessed with the idea of exclusive breastfeeding, right? I mean, I know it's important and it's good, but I didn't think it was a matter of life and death, at least not in Singapore setting. So I started to look at the science of breastfeeding from the point of view of, you know, what actually are the health and developmental benefits? Uh, and I found that, yeah, at that time, back in, you know, 99, 2000 or so, a lot of the research was basically very much about pro- pro- promoting breastfeeding or just breastfeeding advocacy and not so much about the actual biological aspects. So I, I focused on that. That became my next area of research. And so that was from you know, around the 2000, year 2000 all the way to about 2006. And 2006, um, an interesting thing happened. I, one day I saw this poster. Uh, it was a New Zealand Science Week, and, and they had a famous professor from New Zealand coming to Singapore to talk about early life. It was about the developmental origins of health and disease. And that uh, tied very nicely with my uh, interest in how early nutrition, and in particular breastfeeding, actually makes a difference to an individual's uh, long-term health and development. So I went for this lecture, and it was a great lecture. And it was given by this person called uh, Peter Gluckman, a very prominent scientist. Straight away after the lecture, I went up to him and said, oh, it was a great lecture, you know, Collaborate, take it out for dinner. And that, that was it. I mean, after that, we hit it off completely, 2006. And the next thing I knew, I was introducing him to Professor John Wong, who was still the dean of medicine at the time. And we started to plan programs together. Yeah, within a year, we had our first grant, uh, research grant. Yeah, in 2008, we applied for and managed to get a really large grant, a $25 million translational clinical research flagship program grant. We, we, we built this whole program around looking at early life and how it affects long-term health of individuals. And one very big part of this grant was setting up of the GASTO cohort. Uh, GASTO is the acronym for Growing Up in Singapore Towards Healthy Outcomes. And this was a birth cohort that we uh, designed that was quite different from anything else that was present. So, and the great thing was working with Peter Gluckman was that uh, because he is such an ex- expert in this area, we were able to see the gaps. And so we filled the gap in, all the gaps in with the generous funding where we created what we think is probably the most detailed study of early life anywhere in the world. So a few points to know from that is that it's unlikely you'll be doing exactly the same thing during all those uh, 40 to 50 years of your working life, right? So things will change. So I think one is that important for people to maintain their ability to face changes, adapt to them, and then to excel uh, whatever they, they have to do at that point in time. Okay, so, and so just being equipped for one task is not sufficient. So I was wondering like right now that technology is becoming so deeply rooted in our lives. I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the medical humanities. Humanities are, are 
critical. Because as I said, as we become when, when technology becomes more prevalent and is an integral part of our lives, it's important for us not to become completely robotic in our responses. As I said, uh, knowingly, unknowingly, we are already being guided by technology in our everyday decisions. You know? So when you do a search on Google, when you type a text on, on your handphone, it's guided by technology. So it's important for us to maintain that uh, core humanity that allows us to reflect on what we have experienced, make sense of it, and to critically analyze it. And that's what humanities is about. It's, it's you know, reading a, a, you know, a few lines of words and making sense of it, uh, internalizing it. And everybody's interpretation is different. And coming to understand everybody's point of view, or at least most people's point of view, and accepting it, even if you don't agree, these are all things that humanities helps you to develop. And I think that's, that's something that doctors really have to be very strong at. And in particular, doctors have to be very strong in being able to engage people to gain quick insight into what's troubling them beyond the disease. Because that's really the role of a doctor. You know, and so that narrative helps you to zoom in on the, the essence of the problem and helps you to internalize it. Also, the beauty of narratives is that um, it will touch people in different ways, you know, allow for different points of view to, to emerge. And I, and I think that's something, you know, it's one thing I learned since becoming a dean is the importance of diversity and, uh, and the different and hearing every person's point of view because I'm constantly surprised at how much people make sense even when they have a completely different point of view from you. And I've been saved so many times from making terrible errors when I just listen to people, what people have to say. And, and to accept that, yeah, they are right. You know, it's completely not what I would have considered, but allowing that diversity to emerge lends incredible value to everyday lives. Thank you all for listening. Just want to give a shout out to Erica Nyam, composer of our wonderful introductory music. The piece is called Locked In, which was first performed at the Sing Health Humanizing Healthcare concert in December of 2019. If you like this episode and would like to find out more about the podcast, you can follow us at Third Spacing on Instagram or check out our website, thirdspacingpodcast.wordpress.com.